Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. I don't know if you know this, uh, Ken's not joking when he says that he does not run any of this by the staff. It's good to see your faces. Uh, first time I'm getting to kind of uh, talk in front of an actual crowd in a little while. So this is, this is nice. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us online. Um, I was reading Corey Ten Boom's biography, The Hiding Place, and if you know anything about her story, um, she was part of a family of watchmakers in Holland uh, during the German invasion in World War II. And they found themselves heading up a major operation hiding Jews uh, from the Germans. Well, eventually, near the end of her book, her operation is discovered. They've been found out. And her family ends up in a concentration camp. And after a time of solitary confinement and just horrendous things that happen in concentration camps, uh, she eventually finds herself living in a room uh, with her sister, Betsy, and a number of other women, and uh, they have a single Dutch Bible that they were able to, to smuggle in. She wore it like a necklace kind of between her shoulder blades. So they smuggled this in. They would use it to minister to each other. And one day, um, they were particularly struggling. And so they, they were praying that, that God would give them something, anything, from his word to sustain them. And they recalled the verse that they had read that morning uh, that said to give thanks in all circumstances. And Betsy said, that's it, Corey. That's it. We have, to, we have to give thanks in all circumstances. And Corey looks around the room, and, and she's like, such as? And Betsy said, we have each other. We're here together. That's one thing. And so they start, they start praying and thanking God that they were able to, to be with each other in the camp. Um, they were thankful that, that, um, that they were able to smuggle in this Bible uh, undetected, and they were able to um, have so much space and freedom. They, they had experienced enough of the camp at this point to know this is really unusual to have this much freedom in this camp. And so um, they found some genuine things in really a horrible situation to be thankful for. And then Betsy says this. She says, and Lord, thank you for the fleas. And Corey goes, the fleas? And Betsy says, it says to give thanks in all circumstances. So Corey goes along with it, but obviously thought her sister had become a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in the camp. Who thanks God for fleas? Is that what thankfulness is? What does it really mean to give thanks in all circumstances? Well, we're, we're talking about thankfulness today um, to kick off a new series called Mixtape. Uh, you ever make one of those? in high school? They look different based on your age, right? So uh, I, I mainly had CDs, but I lived that transition between tape and CD, so I kind of had both. Of course, I had the really cool boom box that played both of them, right? But you may have had tapes. You may have had eight tracks. I think some of you probably chiseled music notes on rocks. <laughs> but it, it obviously looked different based on your age. Um, Every summer, we get, to, we get to hear from, you know, different voices on our pastoral staff, and we just thought the idea of a mixtape was, was fitting, getting to hear about different topics from different voices. So we're kicking it off with thankfulness, which is closely tied to praise. 
Okay, I didn't realize how closely tied this was, thanksgiving and praise. Um, and we're, it, it's, with, it's, it's tied together with how we view God, with how we relate to him. And when we think of thankfulness, we, we tend to think that it starts with us, don't we? We're going to see today, it starts with our view of God. And, and while it's a talk about thankfulness, it's not a talk on how to be more thankful, as if guilting into gratitude ever worked for anybody. I could give you stats on how fat and wealthy and, and, and well-off we are from the rest of the world and still being unhappy, but that's not what today's about. Uh, we're going to see from this text that, that we need to cultivate a sense of wonder. We need, to, we need to see a picture of grandeur, of mystery, so that thankfulness wells up naturally as the only legitimate response. So thankfulness is a broad topic. We're barely scratching the surface. We're going to look through a small window today at, at uh, Psalm 50 and just see one instance where God deals with this, and then we're going to uh, see how it applies for us. So what we have in Psalm 50, it's a, it's a hypothetical court case. The psalmist is painting a picture of you know, what it might look like if God came and set up court in the sanctuary and examined the way that his people worship. But the passage doesn't start by focusing on the people and what they're doing right or wrong. It starts with who God is. The psalm, it starts by setting up this this powerful scene. So it starts with this, the mighty one, God, the Lord has spoken. Notice the way he's stacking up titles here. It's, it's, It's like a foreign dignitary being introduced with pomp and circumstance. Or, or Bruce Buffer introducing the heavyweight champion of the world who's about to knock you on your face in the octagon. In this corner, right? He's stacking up these, these, ti- these titles, and uh, it's stressing the seriousness of the occasion. It's emphasizing the majesty and the power of the one who's about to speak. And notice he's also moving from generic titles for deity to personal covenantal, relational name of God, Yahweh. That's where you see Lord in all caps. So it says, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. The whole earth is being called in to witness this divine court case. And he says this, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. Zion is his holy mountain. It's where they had their sanctuary, where God localized his presence right there for his people. And, and he's seen here bursting out and shining forth. And this, this shining is anticipating this line down here that says that fire devours before him. It's reminding the people that God is a judge and he's a consuming fire. Alan Ross says that the light here is it's symbolically uncovering sin, and the fire is there to purify. So when I'm reading this and, and taking in this imagery from the beginning of this, I was just thinking there's, there's sort of a primal energy to, this, to the beginning of this passage. It's like a tribunal. You can almost feel the drums beating, building up the suspense. Somebody's about to get voted off the island or have their head lopped off. 
So there's, there's a primal energy almost to it, but there's also this majestic formality to it. Like you're entering in the great hall of royalty and you don't dare open your mouth. It's a terrifying scene. And if you were there, you might imagine yourself wondering to the person next to you, what's this all for? I, I mean, why is he breaking silence now? In verse four, we see the answer. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge. He's coming for someone. This great light has uncovered something and the consuming fire is about to overtake it. Very suddenly, the reader's confronted by the last two words of the verse. They come out of nowhere and they reveal the target of the court case. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. This consuming fire has come for us. And then you realize you're the target. So he says this, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. The stage is set. Act one is complete. And now we hear the charge. Is anybody feeling thankful yet? Bill, he's not talking about thankfulness at all. Let's leave. This passage doesn't start with us. It starts with God. Thankfulness, we'll see here, starts with a right view of him. The wording throughout this psalm, it reflects covenantal language. So certain key words here would remind the Jewish people of their relationship to God and the responsibility to him. The first word in this section, hear, or shema, would, would, would immediately it'd bring them back to the shema in Deuteronomy 6, which is a very important passage for the Jewish people. They, it's how, to, how they would relate to God once they enter the promised land how they would live before him. And so he says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Hear the relational terms. He's, he's calling them my people. And he's not just God. He says, I am God, your God. Another phrase that, that would, it would recall for them what's called the Decalogue in Deuteronomy, where God's reiterating the, the Ten Commandments again. This is highly relational wording. And before he brings the charge against them, he actually provides a little bit of reassurance. He says, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. He's saying, these people have been faithful in their flurry of religious activity. It's continually before him, but the form of their worship we'll see, is, is empty. He says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. And here's the charge against them. They've created this caricature of God in their minds, one who is weak and needy. 
They offer the sacrifices because they think God actually needs them. See, in in ancient pagan cultures, they would actually offer these animal sacrifices to to the gods because they thought the gods needed them. They actually thought that they were feeding the gods. These gods were like humans, and the, and the people just thought that if, if they could satisfy their hunger, then the gods would meet their needs. It was a completely transactional relationship. But can you imagine serving a god who depended on you for food? That's essentially the caricature they've created in their minds of, of who God is without even realizing it. He's too small. And I love that line where God says, If I were hungry, even if that were true, I wouldn't tell you about it. That's, hmm. shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the the blood of male goats? It's comical, or at least it would be if it weren't so grave of a charge. And how often do we think this way about God without even realizing it? How often do do you think that God needs your religious service? Think about your contribution to the legacy campaign. Is your motivation behind it because you think that God needs it? Or do you see it as an invitation to participate? An invitation to participate in the work that he's going to do through every child that enters that building. If I were hungry, do you think I'd tell you? That's not something he needs from us. Listen, any invitation, any invitation into his work is an opportunity for intimacy. Any invitation into his work is an opportunity for for intimacy. Is joining every group that we have and memorizing the Bible, is that something, is that doing something for God? No, it's an invitation for us to delight in him. So when they were sacrificing the animals, it was the right thing to do. It was what they were supposed to do. It was obedient, it was good, but it was empty because they did it for the wrong reasons. God was making it clear to them. He didn't need it. God's saying, it's the animals. It's not the animals that I want. It's you. And for us, it's not what we can do for the kingdom that makes makes you valuable to God. What you and I do for the kingdom is is a privilege to participate in in the purposes that God is already bringing about. I was thinking about it like, it's like a bring your kid to work day. No five-year-old is going to increase your productivity. You know this from the past few months. No five-year-old is increasing your productivity. It's an opportunity to join your father in the work that he's doing. It's an invitation to intimacy. And when we have such a small view of God that we think he needs us, then our gratitude shrinks as well. Because if our relationship with God is just transactional, if he needs us, then we don't recognize our dependence on him. And that's the problem in this passage. It's the problem with these people here is, is that they had a, a skewed and shrunken view of, of who God was and how they were supposed to relate to him. And so here's God's remedy, his, his solution to the problem. Offer to God a sacrifice 
of thanksgiving. Hey, we finally got to thanksgiving. We finally got to thankfulness. Now, the, the Jews, they had a specific animal sacrifice that, that they would bring that was uh, known as the thank offering. But based on the context, you think he's talking about another animal sacrifice here? No, me either. Uh, what's really interesting, I learned this week, is, is that Hebrew actually does not distinguish between thanks and praise. They're independent concepts. When, when you see either word pop up in the Old Testament, they're just translating it either way based on context. Now, Greek has independent words for thanksgiving and, and, and praise, but when you see it in the Old Testament, it's, they're indistinguishable and they're always directed toward God. In Hebrew, thanks and praise are, are they're independent, or they're not independent concepts. So I think, um, I think the, the thanksgiving, the sacrifice of thanksgiving here, or the sacrifice of praise is more like what Psalm 69 is referring to. When it says, I will praise the name of God with song and magnifying with thanksgiving. And it'll please the Lord better than an ox or young bull with horns and hoofs. He's, here he's talking specifically about a song. And Psalm 50, going back to where we were, God's God's saying that we should praise him. Not just in song, but in a whole life disposition toward him. The kind of praise that recognizes our dependence on him. So he says this, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. We're dependent on him, not the other way around. And here's the thing is when you recognize, when you really recognize it in a concrete way, you get to see him work, is what this passage is saying. You get to see him work. You get to see his salvation. And our whole life just wells up in praise. It takes a big picture of God. And that's why one of my favorite quotes stuck with me for years by A.W. Tozer. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. No religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. He says worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Little God, little gratitude. Big God, great gratitude. And this is why thanksgiving cannot start with you. It can't start with me. Counting your blessings is good and right, but it's not the full picture. If you don't have a big view of God, you have nowhere to direct that gratitude. But what does a thankful life look like? Is it, is it just about singing? Do I go around saying thank you or praise God to everything that happens? Well, God makes, makes it clear here that a, a praise song, he makes it clear throughout the Old Testament, a praise song can be just as empty as an animal sacrifice. Look at what he says in Amos. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. God's hating here. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
These people were singing praises while living a life that was completely antithetical to anything God had in his will and his ways. And when the form, you watch the, watch the movement in this passage. When the form of our worship is empty, it leads into all kinds of wickedness and evil. Because when we, we think that as long as we satisfy our religious obligations on a Sunday, that we can live the rest of the way through the week, even if you're not thinking it consciously. And that's when, when God brings the charge against the second group in Psalm 50. To the wicked. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Notice, these aren't just wicked people. These are not people that are outsiders. These are the ones who are still calling themselves part of the community. They're calling themselves God's people. They're taking his covenant in their mouth. But God calls them wicked because they hate his discipline. They cast his words behind them. And he goes on for a few verses about all the types of wickedness that they take part in. But look what he says is at the root of it all. Look at this. You thought I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. There it is again. The problem is how we view God. We thought he was just like us, and somehow we thought this was a symbiotic relationship. And he reminds them, those who forget God, consider this before judgment comes, before you get torn to pieces. Because there's not going to be anyone else to deliver. There's not going to be anyone else to save because God is the only one powerful enough to save. So he offers the same solution he did before. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of praise. That's what honors God. It's a praise that comes from a life of obedience. Those are the ones who are going to see the salvation of God. But we asked the question earlier, what does it look like? What does a life of thanksgiving or of praise look like? What is real gratitude? Does it mean going around and saying thank you all the time? I think there's a real difference. We need to especially hear this in the deep south. There's a real difference between formal manners and authentic gratitude. Right, if I, I teach my kids to say thank you, but if if I have to remind them and they're like, oh, thank you, like does that sound grateful or is or is it empty? There's a difference there between the formality of the manners and actual gratitude. So if we're ungrateful, it's not for lack of politeness or manners. If we're ungrateful, it's because we don't practice praise. We don't practice praise because we don't see him for who he really is. Here's the interesting thing. Just like God didn't need their animal sacrifices, doesn't rely on our religious service, he doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need it. He's self-sustaining. He's got the perfect community of the Trinity, the hosts of heaven. If we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out, Scripture says. Why then does he demand that we praise him? 
hear me, praise and thanksgiving benefit us. It's the gateway into his presence, into intimacy with him. Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Praise is prior to presence. Not because God can't erupt on the scene at any moment, just like he did at the beginning of this psalm and disrupt everything, but because praise is his invitation into intimacy. Scripture says he's enthroned on the praises of his people. An invitation to praise him is an invitation to enjoy him and his presence. See, it's all for him, but we're wrong if we think that it benefits him. Praising God benefits us because it's what we were made for. C.S. Lewis really struggles with this idea in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, which I highly recommend. Excellent book. He discusses uh, really very honestly how much of a problem he had with the fact that God demands praise in the Bible. It's a very candid conversation. He even says a few times, you might think I'm a little hypocritical saying this. Or you might think I'm a little heretical. But he asks the question, does anyone want to praise someone who's demanding it? Doesn't that sound needy? But here's what he says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in the praising of it. Isn't it lovely? Wasn't it glorious? He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It completes it. It's it's a pointed consummation. And so he says, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Hear that last line? The delight is is incomplete until it is expressed. It's not out of need that God tells us to praise him or thank him. It's because we need it. Because we can't fully enjoy him without it. We can't fully enter into the the intimacy that we were created for until we express it. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, "The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if you read any John Piper, you know he always changes the and in there, and he, he changes it to say, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. But really, you could flip it too. They're one and the same. We, 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 um, we glorify God by enjoying him, but we enjoy him by glorifying him. If we stop praising and become ungrateful, it's usually because we've become impressed with our own contribution. 
We start to think God needs them. We start to think that he's just like us. We need a bigger view of God. That's why I love G.K. Chesterton. He says, thanks, thanks are the highest form of thought. He says, gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. We have to recapture that sense of wonder. I can praise him for the good things because the scripture says that every good and perfect thing is from him from above. I can praise him in the bad because scripture says that he will turn all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When good comes, thank him for it. When bad comes, thank him in it because you know that he won't let pain go to waste. You don't have to be thankful and and praise him for losing your job. That wouldn't make sense. But you can praise him and thank him for who he is in the midst of it, what he's doing in you. You don't have to be thankful for all the injustice in the world, but you can be thankful that you serve a just God that one day will come and set it all right again. So how do, you re, how do we recapture that, that sense of wonder and awe of God? I think we have to create that space. We gotta create that space for wonder. And I'll just, I'll just tell you one way that I've tried to put this into practice this week for me plenty of ways you could do this. You know on your phone, there's a do not disturb on your phone. You can schedule it. I've been scheduling it for the first two hours of the day that I'm awake. So no notifications. You know, I'm not looking at my phone unless I'm turning on a worship song or something. And let me tell you, this is hard for me because the, the light of the phone wakes me up. Like I am terrible in the morning. And so the light of the phone like starts to, okay, I'm awake, you know. So this is hard for me, but turning on the do not disturb for the first couple hours, not getting any notifications. And I tell you what, it's so freeing. It's so freeing. Like to spend the first couple hours of your day without any interruptions from the outside world. Uh, To turn on a praise song while you're making coffee, uh, to read a psalm and pray through it. Ask God how you should apply it to your life. Uh, But you know what was waiting for me? Like the first day that I started doing it again, you know what was waiting for me when Do Not Disturb turned off? COVID news. Like it was still there. The world hadn't changed. It was right there waiting for me. But the first part of my day was spent in praise. And I had to, I had to kind of chuckle at the, the fear-mongering headline because I know who's in control. I know who I put my trust in. Not just generally, it was solidified that morning. It was made concrete in that intimate time of praise and thanksgiving. Creating wonder, creating space for for wonder could look a lot of different ways. You know, you can read through the Psalms. uh, You could read the Puritans. That'll spark some wonder in you if you've never read the Puritans. That'll spark something. Listening to worship music, honestly, I have underestimated the role of music in my life. I've been out of worship ministry for two and a half years now, and I'm, I'm realizing, I kind of went through this rut where I just like shut down with music completely, and I'm realizing how much of a rut, how much, how much of a place that it had in my life, and so just putting in my headphones in the morning and listening to a worship song changes my day. It really does. 
It's for him, but I'm the one who needs it. Uh, going back to Corey Ten Boom's story, she was coming in one day from, from manual labor in the camp. And she comes in and uh, she meets her, her sister Betsy there at the room. And uh, she says in the book that Betsy's eyes were triumphant. She's glowing, like she cannot wait to see her. And, and Corey's like, what, what happened? What's going on? And uh, Betsy just, she couldn't wait to spill it. The, the women in their, in their room were doing their work. I think they were knitting. And they ran into a problem they needed the, the guards to come in and help them with. Well, the guards, they're calling the, the guards, and the guards come over, but they won't set foot inside the room. They won't come in. They just stayed there at the doorway, and Betsy goes, it's the fleas. They won't come in because of the fleas. <laughs> That's why we've had so much freedom to minister to these women. They don't want to have anything to do with the fleas. That's the point today. Betsy was never thankful for the fleas. She had a big view of God that he could do something regardless of the fleas, that in the midst of the fleas, he could even change that to good somehow. She had a big view of him. He was big enough. And when your God is big enough, he can make you thankful for even the fleas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, um, that you are big enough. We thank you for the gifts that you give, but God, we mostly thank you for you, for that promise of, of intimacy for those who draw near to you. And thank you, God, that you have, you have made yourself more known completely through your son, Jesus. The one who has revealed your heart. We want a bigger picture of who you are today. So I pray that you help us look to you, Jesus. Your sacrifice, your power, the power of your resurrection. We know your word says in, in Hebrews 13, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. God, we love you. Make us love you more today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hillside, thank you for being here today online with us for a time of worship and teaching. We look forward to next week. In the meantime, though, if you want to connect with one of our leaders, maybe you'd like to pray with someone, want to speak with someone about care, or look at getting plugged in, you could fill out the form available at the link within the QR code. Just hold up your camera to the screen. It'll take you to that link. And again, we'll connect with you and would love to get you plugged in at Hillside. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.